All right, welcome everyone. We'll get started here. The first thing we'll do is take this quiz. Number one, Epaphroditus almost died on his way back to Philippi from Rome. False. Remember, we said, of course, Paul doesn't know what happened to him on the way from Philippi back to Rome, but Paul says he almost died, whether it was on the way to Rome from Philippi or while he was in Rome, he almost died in the service of the Lord. But Paul was going to send him back to Philippi, and uh, we hope he arrives safely. Two, Judaizers were those who wanted Gentiles to keep the Mosaic law. True, true. Paul called the Judaizers mutilators of the flesh because of the physical violence they inflicted on the Gentiles. False. This was just a way to sarcastically talk about circumcision, wasn't it? It wasn't really, since we're not under the Mosaic Law, and certainly Gentiles were never under the Mosaic Law, they didn't need to be circumcised, so it was just a mutilation of the flesh. A circumcised heart is equal to regeneration or being born again. True. So that's how the Old Testament talks about new life, being born again, regenerate, what the theologians call regeneration, is a circumcised heart. Paul picks that up in the New Testament, too. Uh, Five, Paul believed that he was a guilty sinner when he was still a Pharisee. No, he didn't think that way. He thought he had kept the law, thought he was obedient, and he had not transgressed any outward commands and and so forth. So uh, uh, that was his position before. Yeah. Uh, now, it's you know, we you think he probably didn't think he was sinless, but as far as the outward conformity of the law, he had kept the law from his youth, as he says. All right. We're looking today at uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. We're under this uh, section, Warning Against False Teachers. And he's warning here about these people called the Judaizers. These were Jews, Jewish who professed faith in Christ, but nevertheless said that you must keep the Mosaic Law, and they were trying to enforce that upon Gentiles. So when Paul went from place to place, especially Galatia, he was dogged by those Judaizers. And when he got back to Antioch in AD 49, he wrote a letter, the book of Galatians, to talk about what's wrong with uh, trying to be justified by keeping the law. And so here he's facing some of that problem again, and he's warning against these Judaizers, these false teachers, and in that context he gives us a lot of his theological ideas and views and so forth, which are very important to us. So he issues that warning, first of all, in verses 1 through 3 that we saw last week about the Judaizers, And then he has this what's called mock boasting, or it's really not boasting. He's just talking about his own credentials, saying if if a person could be saved or justified by law-keeping, then I could do it because I had a perfect life. I was a Pharisee. I was exceeding all expectations and so forth. And so he talks about all of these uh, uh, privileges, 
all of his achievements and so forth. Uh, and he said uh, in the last part there in verse uh, 4, he says, Though I have myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence, I have the more. Circumcised the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard the law of Pharisee. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And then he says, um, um, verse, we're ready for chapter 3 here, verses 7 through 11, which I'm kind of calling the essence of Paul's theology here. Um, I say here, in these verses, Paul summarizes the distinctiveness of his theology, distinctives of his theology. As with verses 4 through 6, as verses 4 through 6 demonstrated, Paul had not been a failure in Judaism. On the contrary, he was, as he says, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, in Galatians 1.14. Nevertheless, he came to view his previous successes as spiritual bankruptcy, worthless in other words. This leads Paul to describe his new, void point, new viewpoint as a, as a Christian in concise statements that are both theological and personal. Paul speaks of his new life in Christ in terms that we might describe as accompanying the ideas of justification in verse 9, sanctification in verse 10, and glorification, the hope of glorification in verse 11. Jesus is the great divide in our lives. We were spiritually bankrupt before we came to Christ, but now we enjoy spiritual wealth. <clears throat> so the first thing we see here is this spiritual bankruptcy as Paul, now looking back, evaluates his life before he came to Christ. Verses 7 and 8. But whatever we were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ or because of Christ. Through his conversion on the Damascus Road, remember Acts chapter 9, Paul had come to count the privilege and achievements of verses 5 and 6 as liabilities because of Christ. That is, remember what we read, circumcised the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, regard the law of Pharisee, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on you know outward conformity to the law, faultless. He once had regarded such things as gains, positive accomplishments towards his goal of achieving righteousness by keeping the law. But now he had come to the settled conviction that they were actually a detriment, an impairment. These things had not really provided Paul with true righteousness at all. By trusting in his own human performance... He really failed to make any progress toward the righteousness that God requires of each one of us. And God requires perfect righteousness. God requires perfect righteousness. As a Pharisee, Paul had followed the same path as the Judaizers. He was on the same train, same path, seeking acceptance from God by human works. As he came to realize it was a but he came to realize it was a dead end. <clears throat> So, this is exactly what everybody outside of Christ is doing. Everybody who has any religious ideas or thinking about heaven, they are trying to pursue that by their own righteousness. 
talk to them, that's it. They'll say, you know, some people have this question that, you know, you'll ask, uh, if you died, will you go to heaven? Well, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to be a good father. You know, I'm kind to my neighbors. Uh, you know, I help people, you know, uh, take care of my kids, you know. So everybody has this idea of perfecting their own righteousness by their good deeds and the Apostle Paul. So it doesn't make a difference how religious you are or not religious. Everybody is on that same basic path. Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Verse 8 begins with a very emphatic phrase, what is more, that it that makes it clear that Paul intends to reiterate the point of verse 7 in the most forceful terms. Let me be clearer, Paul says. I continue to consider everything a loss. Paul wants the Philippians to know he does not re- regret the decision made on the Damascus Road. Even now, though a prisoner in chains, he continues to regard every one of those privileges and achievements as nothing. But Paul goes further and says that he considers everything that others might consider to have value in this present age, religious advantages, status, material benefits, honor, comforts, as total loss in light of Christ. This reminds us of his statement in 121, for to me to live is Christ. While in verse 7 and the first part of verse 8, these things are counted as loss, Now, in the last part of verse 8, they are viewed as utterly revolting garbage. These privileges and achievements were not garbage in and of themselves, but were exactly that when viewed in comparison to the value of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, as verse 10 will clarify when we get there, knowing Christ does not mean mere intellectual knowledge about him, but to know him personally know him relationally, to know him experientially. So Paul is saying all his privileges, all of his achievements, all of his accomplishments were garbage in the sense that they had in reality been working to destroy him. They were binding him and they were sort of blinding him to his need for the true righteousness that God requires. They promoted a self-righteousness, as we said, a satisfaction that cannot meet God's demand for righteousness. Remember Isaiah says, all our righteous acts, Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So they're not really acceptable, no matter how good they may appear in comparison to what God requires in the holiness of God. Paul expresses the purpose of his conversion with the final clause, that I may gain Christ. This seems to express the same thought as Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 26. What profit will a man gain, have if he gains the whole world and suffers the loss of his life? Paul's own experience constitutes a dramatic illustration of that truth taught by our Lord. Paul, as the expression goes, had the world by the tail. Man, he was, <laughs> in the world of Judaism, he was on top of it. He was, he was, a, he was really, really going great. But it was all for nothing. You know, it was all for nothing. For Paul, the knowledge of Christ Jesus as his Lord meant the intimate communion with Christ that began at his conversion 
and it had been his experience all the years since. It was not limited to the past. As verse 10 shows, I want to know Christ. Paul in verse 10 will continue to say that. I want to know Christ. It was a growing relationship. So often, remember, we use the word, we ask somebody, do you know Christ? You mean, have you been saved? Have you trusted Christ? But Paul uses this term of knowing as a continual thing. We've come to know Christ initially, but we continue to know him in an experiential way as we gain greater knowledge, greater obedience. So in the interest of this goal of knowing Christ, of this knowledge of Jesus Christ, Paul had been willing to suffer the loss of all these things which he had spoken about. And he regarded them as garbage, as worthless in order to gain Christ. What was considered, you know, great and wonderful gain, uh, now he he considers loss, he says. Um, So, although we receive Christ, we know Christ, we continue to discover the richness of Christ and, and new things and we have greater obedience, greater appreciation. We grow in our experience of salvation, as just as the Apostle Paul talks about here. Now let's look at this spiritual wealth, verses 9 through 11. Verses 7 and 8 focused on the lost side of the equation. There Paul asserted that his previous achievements had a yielded spiritual bankruptcy. As far as God was concerned, they were worthless. And now Paul sees them as worthless, even garbage. Now in verses 9 through 11, he focuses exclusively on the positive side, what he is standing to gain. Paul will explain what it means to gain Christ. And so when I look at these verses, we can sort of summarize them in these three categories. Uh, When Paul talks in verse 9 and 10 and 11, he's talking more about justification. Verse 10, more about what we call sanctification, spiritual growth, maturity. And verse 11, he he talks about glorification. So we'll we'll think about these theologically, his statements here. Verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The verb be found, along with its modifier, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, elaborates what it means to gain Christ. Paul wants the divine scrutiny he will undergo at Christ's return to reveal that he had been in union with Jesus Christ. For this to be so... It could not be on the basis of a righteousness he would call his own, that is, the kind of righteousness one might achieve through general conformity to the Mosaic law. With a very strong contrasting but, Paul affirms that if we are to be found in him, we must possess a righteousness that has its source not in us, but in God. Paul is speaking here of what theologians call imputed righteousness. Righteousness that's not our own, righteousness that comes from Christ, and is counted to us or imputed. Martin Luther called this alien righteousness. Let me say something that may seem a little shocking here, but bear with me here. The church has always believed that heaven must be merited. 
The Christian church has always believed that heaven must be merited. The question is, whose merit? Is it our merit or is it Christ's merit? And the church has believed it's Christ's merit. It's not our own merit. It's Christ's merit. But when people think, i got to do this to get to heaven, they're on the right track. It requires merit. <laughs> and I'll explain that as we go along here a little, a little more, what I'm talking about. But we need the merit of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Uh, and so we see here, Paul had given up on his own efforts to, to obtain righteousness or to merit heaven through the law. He now looked outside of himself, what Luther called alien, foreign. The righteousness which is imputed to us is alien. It's not ours. It belongs to somebody else. It's foreign. So he looked outside of himself and saw that this righteousness can only come as a gift of God. So when we think of Martin Luther, we think about the man we credit with sort of the start of the Reformation. Because the Roman Catholic Church was tied up, had become to believe that really, it's really partly your righteousness. You have to achieve righteousness to get into heaven. Let me read you a little bit from Luther's conversion experience here. He says, uh, meanwhile, remember Luther is an Augustinian monk. He's a devout Roman Catholic. He's doing all the things a Roman Catholic would do, denying himself. Even some you know, priests beat themselves, scourge themselves. He's doing everything he can you know, from his own works part. But he's a scholar. He's a teacher. He's teaching the Bible and so forth in Wittenberg, Wittenberg. And so uh, he's talking about that. He says, meanwhile, I had already during that year, he's talking about July 1519. Now, Luther, Luther nails those 95 theses on the church wall in 1517. Some debate about, you know, did Luther fully understand what he was doing then? He was still a Roman Catholic really then, probably. It's a gradual process that he really comes to see all the the the, the what's really required, what God is saying about righteousness. And he's writing here, he says, Meanwhile, I had already during that year, July 15, 19, returned to interpret the Psalter again, the book of Psalms. I had confidence in the fact that I was more skillful after I had lectured in the university on St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the one to the Hebrews. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for the understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 1. It, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed that stood in my way. For I hated, for I hated, uh, uh, excuse me, for I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and imputes and, and punishes the unrighteous sinner. So he's talking about this passage here, where Paul says, not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God that brings salvation. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so the way Luther is understanding this phrase, righteousness of God, he's thinking about God's holiness, that God is a holy, righteous God who punishes sinners. And he says, in the gospel, 
the righteous God who punishes sinner is revealed. And that's not a lot of help to him. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I hated that word righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand regarded the active righteousness, as they call it, which God righteousness and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe it was placated by my satisfaction. So he was doing all these things to satisfy God, but in his conscience he was still felt guilty. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, Certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin. So, okay, we know that because of the fall, we're guilty of Adamic sin, we're sinners, and we can be condemned just on the basis that we're in Adam. He says it's bad enough that we're lost through original, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue. So the, the, the Ten Commandments, you know, that crushes us. Without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. So he says, when I read the gospel, it's no help. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the holy wrath of God's revealed. That's how I read the gospel. <laughs> so he says, well, there's no help. It's bad enough what the Old Testament says, and the gospel's no help here. So, thus I rage with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importantly upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that which is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful which with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through an open gate. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in other terms that analogy as the work of God, that it is what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. As I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred which I had been before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. So what he came to realize here is that that righteousness of God is not talking about God's holiness and righteousness and wrath he pours out, but the righteousness of God that he gives to us. We might translate righteousness from God. For in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed. The, the, the gospel tells us how we can be right with God. It tells us that this righteousness of God is imputed to us. We'll see that as we go along here. Um, this righteousness is received through faith in Christ, Paul says. I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
But that which comes through faith, through believing in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is given to us on the basis of faith. In summary then, Paul says that true righteousness is obtained by abandoning one's own efforts and exercising faith. Paul understands faith as the opposite of seeking to establish one's own righteousness. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Romans 10, 3 is talking about Israel. And that sense, works, in that sense, works and faith are incompatible. So we should understand with Paul that part of saving and faith, part of saving faith is really counting everything but loss. Counting all those things that may be conceived as self-confidence. That's what happens to a person when they get saved. They come to God and they're at their end. You know, I'm repenting. What I've been doing is wrong. I've been trying to establish my own righteousness. I'm trusting you, God. What Paul describes in this verse is what is called justification. Justification is the instantaneous legal act of God in which he declares all of our sins forgiven and, two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So what Paul is talking about here is justification. When he says, I came to have a righteousness not of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God. So if we think about the doctrine of justification, it's a legal declaration. It's not, it's forensic in the sense that it's not experiential. So when I'm saved, one of the things that happens is I'm justified. That's a legal declaration. I don't feel justified. I don't experience justification, you know. It's something God does. He forgives my sin, and he accounts me as righteous. So there's a negative side and a positive side, as I say here. Number one, he declares all our sins forgiven. So now we don't have any sins. But see, that won't get you into heaven. If you if you go to the judge and uh, you're accused of a crime, stealing, and the judge says not guilty, it doesn't mean you're righteous. You need some sort of positive righteousness. Remember I said heaven must be merited. You've got to have some sort of positive righteousness. So the other part of justification is what theologians call this imputation. God forgives us of our sin, but he also imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remember Pastor Ken is talking about this all the time. Sometimes he'll mention the theological terms the active and passive obedience of Christ. Have you heard him say that? So, the active obedience of Christ was his holy life that he led, a righteous life, and his passive obedience was his death on the cross. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But that holy life he lived, that righteous life, that righteousness is applied to us. So justification is two aspects. We are forgiven of our sins and we're looked upon as being righteousness, righteous because we're in Christ. Now, the moment I'm saved, it doesn't change me, Bill Combs, personally. I'm still the same person I always was. Now, God's interested in that, too. He wants to make me more righteous, but that's not justification. That's a different doctrine. That's uh, sanctification. 
So uh, I say here, justification has two sides. On the one hand, it includes the forgiveness of sins because Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Uh, But forgiveness of our sins is not enough to get us to heaven. A judge may declare someone not guilty. They're not necessarily a righteous person. Therefore, justification also includes the imputation, the counting of Christ's righteousness to us. So Paul says in other places... But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, the righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ to all who believe. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So, um, for as through one man, through us... For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, also through the obedience of the one man, of course, Christ, Adam versus Christ, the many will be made righteous. All of this is accomplished by the obedience of Christ, as we see here, the obedience of one man. As Paul said in 2.8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This obedience of Christ is not limited to his death, but simply culminates in his death. By nature, obedience is a continuous state requiring a continuation of obedience. So even one act of disobedience makes a person disobedient. Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness. Jesus himself spoke of this at his baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. And you come to me, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. So this is just the beginning, the baptism and so forth. He lived a perfectly righteous, sinless life. Through Jesus' perfect obedience, though Jesus' perfect includes his whole life culminating in his death, it's helpful to distinguish between his act of obedience, his perfect life of righteousness and conformity to the law, and his passive obedience, his death on the cross for our sins. The righteousness that God imputes to us in justification is the perfect righteousness of Christ, his active obedience. And the way he does it, the instrument or means by which we are justified, is by faith. So this is the heart of the Reformation. This is what Luther discovered. And this is totally contrary to the Roman Catholic Church that Luther was in. So, after the Reformation, in the 1500s, 1545-63, the Roman Catholic Church reacted to the Protestant Reformation, this teaching of imputed righteousness. They had the Council of Trent, which these precepts still stand. Here's what they say. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith, let him be anathema. So that's directly against what we believe. The Roman Catholic Church says, you believe you're justified by faith, anathema. Canon 11, if anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, let him be anathema. So you're not justified just by Christ and what Christ has done. You've got to do something. It's faith plus works. It's Christ's righteousness and your righteousness. 
The Roman Catholic Church does not believe imputed righteousness at all. They deny that doctrine. They believe in what's called infused righteousness. If you're going to be, they, they agree, heaven's got to be merited. And if it's going to be merited, then righteousness has got to be infused in you. So you've got to do a lot of stuff, the Roman Catholic Church says. Because we've got to infuse righteousness. Yes? I don't have to answer this now, but just uh, my brain is going. Um, is it possible to be saved and not fully grasp this twofold True. component of justification? Oh, most people don't. Because um, I know several Catholics coming, sure. growing up Catholic. Right. That and I, and I realize that nowadays that is an obscurely taught. Yeah, they don't say they don't talk. No, they don't talk that. I, don't I know. I was never taught that. No, you were never taught that. But not 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 per se, but um, they exercise it in yeah. example. That's the way your that's the way your life worked in the Roman Catholic exactly. Church. Yeah. But um, I I can't help but think that there are so many in the Catholic Church. Um, Putting their faith in the justification without fully understanding. Could be. People. Could be. There's, so, there's a lot of gospel out there people hear. They hear on the radio, they hear on the internet. Yeah, right. And perhaps really are safe. Yes, that's but, true. You know, that's why I'm curious. Yeah, it's so. very well, very possible. Very possible. Uh, Canon 12. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits the sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies, let it be anathema. So you can't, a Roman Catholic can't say right now, I'm justified. You can't say that. Because justification only comes at the end of your life when you get to heaven. Then you're justified. Third, 24. If anyone says that justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase, let them be anathema. See that? We believe that the good works are a fruit of justification or a fruit of being saved. But they say no. If you believe that, that's anathema. That these good works increase your righteousness. They make you more righteous because you got righteousness has to be infused in you. Canon 30. If anyone says that after the reception of grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged, either in this world or in purgatory, before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. So you're going to have to do a lot of stuff in this life, be as righteous as you can, but then unfortunately, purgatory awaits you. Because you're going to have to be punished and purified, maybe for millions of years. You know, unless you're a saint who go directly to heaven, saints and so forth, maybe. But otherwise, you're going to purgatory in the Roman Catholic system. There's a sense in which justification is essentially passive. But by that, we do not mean the person is totally a, a passive instrument through whom believing occurs. Paul makes clear that people are responsible to believe, but we must also insist that believing is not something we do in the sense of what Paul calls works. 
but is always a response, an accepting of the gift God holds out to us in his grace. Believing, then, while a genuinely human activity possesses no merit or worth for which God is somehow bound to reward us, for salvation is from first to last God's work. Faith is more properly the instrument, not the cause of justification. Faith is the passive instrument, not the active cause. Now, this can be tricky. We are not saved by faith. Now, we use that expression, I'm saved by faith, saved by faith. But I'm saying, we're not saved by faith, that is, not because of faith. The preposition by can have different meanings in English, you know. So, we're not saved by faith in the sense we're saved because of our faith. It's not because, it's not a work, but we're saved by Christ through the instrument of faith that God gives us, he grants to us. Faith must always be talked about as to its object. Faith is what that, that which looks to Christ, trust in Christ. Faith just puts us in touch with Christ who saves us. Faith is the means or instrument created in our hearts by God, yet which we truly exercise that brings us to Christ. Sanctification. Paul goes on, and as he describes his experience, he moves from this imputed righteousness over to his present knowing Christ. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yet, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Gaining Christ, I consider everything lost that I may gain Christ, not only means having a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, verse 9, justification, but also a continuing desire to know Christ as an experiential way, in an experiential way, sanctification, spiritual growth, maturity. By the term sanctification, we're referring to what is commonly called progressive sanctification, which says that sinners are progressively being set apart from the power and practice of sin becoming more holy while sin is being extirpated. So, if we looked at a chart, I'm trying to diagram it here. We are depraved, sinful creatures. Justification doesn't do anything to me inside. That's sanctification. Now, this is where the Roman Catholic Church, they just merge those two together. There's no such thing as justification in a judicial sense where you're, you have imputed righteousness. It's just all one big thing. So if you want to be righteous, you got to do good works. But we're depraved, sinful creatures, and God works holiness in us, ultimately to the time of glorification. Verse 10 can be viewed as an expansion of the earlier phrase, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So from the moment of his conversion on the Damascus Road, Paul had come to know the risen and exalted Lord, and he found in Christ an inexhaustible knowledge, fullness of knowledge. There's always more to know, to learn. The word know speaks of, you know, when he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know him experientially in a greater way, in a fuller way. What it means to know Christ is explained in the last part of verse 10 as knowing the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering. Paul wants to know experientially the power of Christ's resurrection. This divine power that raised Christ from the dead is the power now operating in our lives to bring about our sanctification. This power enables us to live a new life. 
Paul says, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, Romans 6.4. So Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we can live a new life because we have been raised with Christ. Remember Colossians says, since you've been risen with Christ, seek those things above. Thus, when Paul speaks about experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection, he has in mind our spiritual transformation into the image of Christ. A transformation that takes place according to 2 Corinthians 3.18 as we behold His glory. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Now, to understand this, we have to think back of the context there. Paul is contrasting the Old Covenant with Moses and the New Covenant. Moses went up on the mountain. He got the Ten Commandments. He came down. His face began to shine, remember, with glory and so forth. And he's saying the New Covenant is much greater than the Old Covenant. It's vastly superior. And in this New Covenant, we don't put mask on like Moses did. We view him with unveiled face. We see the Lord's glory. We are transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Spirit, the Lord who is the Spirit. This power that brings about our sanctification is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. But it does not come to us directly as though we could just pray and the power of God would instantaneously make us holy. There have been people who thought that. John Wesley. I talked about that in a couple summer. I can't remember when it was a couple summers ago or what it was uh, last summer. Uh, so there was in the Methodist movement and so forth, the belief in Christian perfectionism, that you could instantaneously be perfect. No, that's not true. Um, the sanctifying power comes to us indirectly through means that Pastor Ken was talking about today. What are called the ordinary means of grace. So God uses means for us to know Christ better, to grow, to mature. The first, God uses Scripture. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. So God uses Scripture. As we heard this morning, preach to us. As we're taught, we hear Scripture. We read Scripture. We think on Scripture. That changes us as we are obedient. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk. So by it, you may grow up in your salvation. Now I commit to you, to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind on God's word. Scripture provides us with the norm or standard to identify what is right and wrong. It identifies sins that we must shun and virtues that we are to embrace. Scripture tells us what holiness looks like. It tells us what resources we have as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, and how to use these resources. Therefore, obviously, we must hear, read, study, memorize, meditate, correlate, and apply God's Word. So that's why most everything we do here at CBC is centered around Scripture, because it's the primary means of our sanctification, and so we have to take great heed at what we hear at this place. Second, God uses our prayers and the prayers of others. Warfield concluded, what is prayer but the very adjustment of the heart for the influx of grace, the grace of sanctification? 
Sanctification is a struggle, a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Through prayer, we receive power to put to death the misdeeds of the body. We need God's help every moment to battle sin, to submit to his will. The writer of Hebrew encourages us about the important role of prayer. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In our daily trials and temptations, we can easily become depressed and anxious. So Paul reminds us, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So God uses scripture as a means. He uses uh, prayer. He uses our prayers. He uses the prayers of others for us. Third, God uses the fellowship of God's people. God does not want Christians to live independent from one another, but in relationship to one another. As the writer of Hebrews says, and let us consider how we may spur one another onward to love and good works, not giving up the meeting together. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. One of the most important things we can do to aid in the sanctification of our fellow believers is to encourage them. Our fellow believers' fellowship with other believers is inexorably tied to Scripture and prayer. We learn and understand about Scripture from our interaction with our fellow believers. Paul says that we are competent to instruct one another. We pray for our fellow believers and they pray for us. Paul adds in verse 10 that our sanctification, our growth and transformation are not to be had without pain, but requires participation in his sufferings. Paul had earlier reminded the Philippians in 127 through 30 of the struggle, conflict, and suffering that characterized the Christian citizen. In 26 through 11, he'd also underlined the shameful death to which their Lord had submitted himself. Now Paul speaks of his goal to experience a share in the suffering of Christ, and to be formed after the manner of Christ's death. Participating in Christ's suffering does not mean that we somehow have a part in Christ's expiatory sufferings, his penal substitution on the cross. Those were Christ alone. But each believer, by identifying himself with Christ, incurs a measure of Christ's affliction. One verse says, uh, remember Paul on the Damascus Road when he meets Christ he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Jesus says, Paul, you're persecuting me. No, he wasn't persecuting Jesus as a person directly. He was persecuting the church, believers, wasn't he? But in persecuting believers and causing believers to suffer, there's an identification with Christ. That's what I'm trying to suggest here. There's identification between Christ and his followers. So these sufferings, these uh, difficulties may be of various kinds. They may be inward. They may be external. As we find ourselves in a world that's hostile to what we believe, and that's increasingly so, hostile to our allegiance to Christ. Um, Paul already said this in Philippians 1.29. You remember where he said that uh, 
it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And then in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I say here, Paul elaborates on the idea of participation in his suffering with the phrase becoming like him in his death. In Romans 6, Paul explains our sanctification as an identification with Christ's death. Because we are united to Christ, we can be said to die with him. For us, that means a death to the former life under the dominion of sin. Romans 6 is setting forth one of the benefits of union with Christ, death to sin. A judicial benefit of union with Christ is justification. An experimental, experiential benefit is sanctification. Union with Christ is the grounds of justification and the means of sanctification. So what I was saying there quickly, we won't try to turn to Romans 6, but in Romans 6, Paul's point there in the first part of the chapter (laughs) is uh, there's a sense in which when Christ died, we were identified identified with his death. We're in union with Christ. We're united with Christ. So when Christ died on the cross we can say there's a sense of which we died. In what sense did we die? And Paul says we died to the dominion of sin. That is, sin no longer has lordship over us. We were totally depraved. Christians are no longer totally depraved. Their depravity is being extirpated. Remember that chart I had? We're growing in holiness. So we're still sinful. The remains of sin will always be with us. There's no way to get perfection. But the point is uh, this this identification with Christ means we die with Christ in a sense and that was a death to the dominion of sin over us so sanctification and justification are both related to the union with Christ one's judicial legal, non-experiential the sanctification is an experiential result from that union with Christ So, uh, sanctification is intended to bring our present state in conformity to Christ. Um, Remember what Paul says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So God's goal for us is our sanctification, that we can be conformed to the image of his Son. And I also have mentioned the 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we contemplate the Lord, as we reflect on the Lord, as we learn about the Lord, as we obey the Lord, we're transformed. There's a transformation that takes place we call sanctification. So uh, it's up to us. We have a responsibility to exhibit this truth by separation from the old life and a continual walking in the power supplied by Christ's resurrected Resurrection. Finally, Paul talks about glorification, 311. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection of the dead and ultimately glorification. The final outcome of our gaining Christ is our resurrection and glorification. It represents the culmination of our spiritual privilege, a pilgrimage. Verse 11 is also linked with verse 10 in that it sets forth the resurrection as the goal that gives meaning to Paul's suffering. 
This idea is also expressed in Romans 8, 17. We share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. So God has ordained suffering as the path to glorification. That's not what I would ordain. You know, if I was ordaining, I would ordain Easy Street. But that, that's, that's not what God's ordained for us. He's ordained suffering as the path to glorification. And he has a lot of reasons for that. Um, I say here, a serious problem um, would seem to be raised, however, by the apparent tentativeness of Paul's language somehow attaining. Elsewhere, Paul speaks with great assurance of his future hope. You know, sometimes he's very confident. He says, those he predestined, he also called. You know, this is Pastor Ken's favorite, one of his favorite verses he tells us all the time. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. He puts it in the past tense, doesn't he? It's like we were already glorified. It's, it's assured. If you've been justified... You're going to be glorified. That is why I am suffering as I am, he tells Timothy. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. I'm sure. So on some verses, he presents this very sure sense. But here we sense a little distrust. Again, there are other passages where Paul notes a self of, uh, note of self-trust. In uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The solution to this seeming conflict is to distinguish between the firm, unmovable object of our hope and our subjective apprehension of it. The apostle Paul, in spite of his maturity, was neither omniscient nor sinless. He had a healthy concern for his own perseverance, and so should we. So what I'm saying here, this is a Paul's expression that we often see of the need to persevere. A Christian must persevere. We must continue in faith and good works. And that's a fruit. That's a, that's a fruit of our union with Christ. It's not something we work in ourselves. We participate in this. But Paul often expresses this, even the great apostle must continue in his faith. Um, so um, Paul himself was obviously concerned about increasing Christian assurance, uh, but it was des- he was balanced by his desire not to be presumptuous. You remember in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, if you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. <clears throat> This is always a problem for pastors. They don't. They, they are always worried about preaching on this doctrine of perseverance, because on the one hand, you want to give people assurance. If you trusted Christ and you're saved, you believe in Him, you're definitely going to get to heaven, and so forth. And some people take that as well. Great, I live like I want, man. <laughs> and we meet them. Have you ever been saying, "Oh yeah"? I, I was saved back when I was 12 years old. I was baptized at the First Baptist Church. <laughs> Have you been to church? Not in the last 30, 40 years, but I'm going to heaven, you know. So there's those kind of people who don't show any fruit, any evidence. And you want to warn those. We all need to be concerned about our own spiritual life, our own perseverance. The problem is you've got some people in the church who have very sensitive consciousness. consciousness. 
a very sensitive conscience. And, you know, they commit any little thing, any little infraction, you know, I got a parking ticket. Am I going to hell? You know, this, they just go overboard with that kind of thing. So there's a balance here, and it's hard because sometimes you can scare people too much into doubting their salvation, you know, and then some people need to doubt a little bit because of the way they're living. So there's this healthy thing. So that's what we see in Paul. Sometimes he expresses uh, a tentativeness here because even he, the great apostle, I have to worry about not being uh, disapproved, as he says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, disqualified for the prize. So these warnings against complacency, and I say, and this presumptuous spirit are open to misinterpretation. John Calvin said that Paul wants to impress on us the difficulties, struggles, and hindrances that attend the believer's life. The apostle would remind us that even he must watch and pray continually to abide in the fellowship of Christ's suffering, for only in that way the glorification with Christ will be attained. Therefore, on the one hand, we should not minimize the note of self-distrust present in this passage. Yet on the other hand, we must not generalize from it and deduce that Paul did not enjoy assurance of salvation, a fact that seems clear from the many other passages as well as the whole tenor of his teaching. Certainly, he expected others, including the Philippians, to share in that assurance. It may be that he expresses this tentativeness right here, as he does sometimes, as we saw, like 1 Corinthians 9. It may be he expresses it here because of what's coming up in the next section. There appears to be a sort of perfectionist tendency in some people at, at uh, Philippi. That is, they think they have arrived. And they have nothing else to gain. They, you know, they've arrived and they're perfect. And it could be that Paul is expressing tenderness about his own self here. He's not, and he'll say, I have not arrived. I have not attained. You know, he'll tell us in that next section. So it could be that's what he's doing. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together today. And help us, Father, as we struggle and think about these words of the Apostle Paul and the importance of they have for our own lives. We pray in Christ's name.